All right, our next speaker is Joe Courtright. He's president and principal economist for Impressa, a consulting firm specializing in regional economic analysis, innovation, and industry clusters. Joe is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, senior policy advisor for CEOs for Cities, a national organization of urban leaders, and the chair of the Oregon Governor's Council of Economic Advisors. As an advisor to state and local governments, private businesses, foundations, and advocacy groups in more than a dozen states, Canada, and Europe, Joe's work casts a light on the role of knowledge-based industries in shaping regional economies. He and his work are regularly quoted in the media, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, The Economist, Business Week, and USA Today. Please welcome Joe Courtright. Thanks. Hi, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the financing of the Columbia River Crossing Project, and I've got a set of slides here that I'll show you if we can project them up on the screen, and talk to you a, a bit about what the true cost of the project is, how it'll be financed, and what some of the implications are for our region. And basically, I'm going to cover three points. I'm going to tell you that the total price of the project over a 30-year period, including the all-in costs, the financing, the interest, and the associated costs with the project, is really something on the order of $10 billion and not the $3.5 billion that's widely been quoted. Then second, I want to talk to you about some changes that are happening in the way that we get around, the way that we travel. And it's really the case when you look at the traffic forecast for travel up and down the I-5 corridor that there's actually very little demand for additional capacity. And that has important implications for this project, in particularly for the financing of this project, uh, because it is predicated on a very large increase in demand for traffic across the river. If that doesn't materialize, the financial plans are very much in jeopardy. And then I'll spend a few minutes talking about a whole series of financial risks that are posed by the Columbia River Crossing and the very risky way in which it is proposed to be financed. So let's walk through each of these in, in turn. First of all, how do we get to a total price tag of roughly $10 billion for the project? Well, the number that you hear is usually this $3.8, $3.9 billion cost figure, which is the initial construction cost of the project. That's, if you will, the sticker price of the project. And if you had $3.9 billion in cash today, you could presumably walk in and be able to do that. But we don't have that money today. In fact, this project is predicated on a very large borrowing. Uh, and we're going to have to pay over 30 years, the way it's proposed to be financed, about $2.7 billion in interest. So an amount approaching the initial purchase price of the project itself. In addition, because this project will be financed by tolls, we'll pay, have to pay money to collect those tolls. And uh, most people will pay by getting an electronic transponder, a little device you'll put in your car that will essentially debit your account every time you cross over the bridge. For people who don't do that, however, uh, there'll be a system of cameras that record people's license plates and send people bills. And everybody who doesn't have a transponder, who doesn't buy a transponder, will pay a surcharge. In Washington, it's about a dollar, dollar and a half surcharge on each transaction. And over 30 years, that works out to $1.7 billion in total charges. In 
addition, as you heard John Charles talk about, there are a number of other critical choke points in the region. One of them is the Rose Quarter choke point, and to fix that so that this project works will cost about an additional $1.3 billion. And then there's some costs associated with credit card processing fees, sales tax, and other things, and then about $175 million to operate the new light rail system. When you roll all of those things together, you get a total price tag over 30 years of $10 billion. Now, we might want to do the Columbia River crossing. I'm not saying one way or another. But if we do, it really means that we need to be prepared to pay $10 billion over the next 30 years and ask ourselves whether that's worth it. Um, and I don't know that the, we would all agree that that's the correct answer. Some of the costs are driven by this very novel way that it's financed. And without going into a lot of detail, uh, if you... Think back to three or four years ago when mortgage brokers were telling you that you could have a pick-a-pay loan, that you deferred all of the principal repayment, that you only paid interest, and it had a variable interest rate. That would be the equivalent level of risk for this project. This project assumes that we borrow a whole bunch of money for the construction period and pay interest on it during construction, and that we have this very... Um, uh, a backloaded system of paying, repaying the money where we only pay a little money back in the first few years of the project and count on growth in toll revenues over a 30-year period to grow very rapidly so that we get more and more money towards the end of uh, the construction period. And that creative form of financing actually almost doubles the total amount of interest that we have to pay. This isn't like a 30-year fixed mortgage that you would go out and pay the same amount each year. This assumes that we raise the toll revenues every year and have more money to pay it back. And that may not be the case as, as when we talk about that. There will in addition be these surcharges in Washington right now in the Seattle area for the new 520 floating bridge replacement. Um, they're going to this um, um, uh, electronic toll collection process with photo recognition. They're going to be charging a dollar and a half surcharge for people who don't have one of these transponders. Second thing I want to talk about is the demand for travel in the United States, and in particular, the number of cars that will be traveling over this bridge. Because the bridge depends on tolls to pay for it, it's critical that they know how many people will use the bridge each year for the next 30 years to know how much money they'll get to in order to repay the loans that they're going to get. And as it turns out, when you look at the forecasts that they have for traffic over the bridge, they assume that traffic levels will increase every year uh, for the next 30 years at about 1.3% a year. That's that uh, red dashed line that you see up there at the top of the chart. That was their projection of how fast they thought traffic would grow, and you could draw that line out for the next 30 years. The solid line that drops off very sharply there after 2005 is the actual number of cars going across the 205 bridge for each of the last few, few years. And you can see that number has gone down because, as we all know, we're not paying the dollar or dollar fifty a gallon that we we're paying for gas in the early part of the 2000s. We're paying three and four dollars a gallon for gas. And just that factor alone has led to a dramatic turnaround in the trends for traffic. And it's the case today that we're about 17,000 vehicles per day below the level that the CRC has forecast just for the year 2010. And if you draw that out for the next 30 years, that shortfall puts a giant hole in the financing of the CRC. And the only way that can be made up is if you get additional tax revenues from other sources 
or raise the tolls still higher, which is problematic because then that cuts into uh, traffic growth. And this isn't a, an isolated or a, a unique phenomenon to I-5. Driving is going down. We're driving less individually as we did nationally. We're driving now about the same level we were in 1999, about 26 miles per person per day. That's the average for all urban residents in the United States. But we're ve- it's a very different trend than we got or that you would have thought we would be on based on the record from the 1980s or 1990s. And the CRC's traffic forecasts are based on a set of trends that assume that we can all buy gasoline for a dollar or a dollar and a half a gallon. Uh, and if that were the case, they might be right. But as we all know, that's um, not uh, the reality that we're in today. And that blows a giant financial hole uh, in this project. Uh, the other thing I should say is, When you go to the bank to borrow money, you have to show that you've got the means to repay it. And for toll bridges and toll financing projects, the way you do that is by doing a very sophisticated, very detailed, what's called investment-grade financial analysis. You look at carefully at all the assumptions about how many people will be traveling in the corridor, how much they're willing to pay, and so on. That hasn't been done for this project. If you do that kind of analysis for this project, it will show that the toll revenues that they're counting on simply aren't there. Uh, and the independent review panel that was appointed by Governor Gregoire and uh, Governor Kolongoski said that has to be done. It hasn't been done yet. And then finally, I want to conclude by talking about those, some of the financial risks that this project uh, uh, poses to us as taxpayers uh, and citizens in the region. Uh, the first thing that I want to point out is while the price tag, we're taking CRC at its word that it can deliver this project for $3.8 billion if we have that cash up front, The track record of the Oregon and Washington Departments of Transportation in delivering even modest projects today on time and under budget doesn't lead us to have any confidence that that would be the case. If you look at the two biggest projects that the Oregon Department of Transportation is working on right now, one is an extension or a widening of Highway 20 between Newport and the Oregon coast. Another one is the Newburgh-Dundee bypass. Both of those projects are now projected to cost more than double the amount that they were budgeted for when they were at the stage that the CRC is right now. So another project, the Grand Avenue Viaduct in Portland. Similarly, its cost today is double what public officials were saying uh, when the project was first uh, proposed. So the likelihood of cost overruns for a project of this type are uh, not just likely, it's almost inevitable. In fact, Careful studies that have been done of these multi-billion dollar transportation projects, what are called now mega projects, where they cost a billion dollars or more, is they routinely run over budget. And the average amount by which they run over budget is about 28%. This is true in the United States. It's true all over the world for a whole variety of reasons. Well, a 25% cost overrun on this project in big round numbers works out to an additional billion dollars uh, for a project like this. And that's a billion dollars, again, that would presumably land in the laps of Oregon and Washington taxpayers. In addition, there are a whole bunch of other risks. Uh, when we, when we uh, build a project like this and we don't have cash in hand, we're going to have to go out and borrow the money. We're going to have to pledge future toll revenues. And if the toll revenues aren't sufficient, we have to pledge gas tax revenues and other tax revenues. So the bonds are essentially like you know, signing your house away. And if you don't get enough revenue from the tolling, then all the other things that you pledge 
are liable to repay it. So this could be you know, essentially a giant black hole that absorbs all kinds of public revenue that would otherwise be available for transportation and other improvements in the region. And as I said earlier, this project is based on the assumption that more and more cars drive over the bridge every year and that they raise the toll rate every year at least 2.5%. And that's why they get what we call this backloaded revenue schedule where they'll pay back just a little bit of the money uh, in the first few years and hope that the volumes increase every year and that they have more and more money each year and they pay off the bulk of the bonds in the last few of those 30 years. And that's how they, with creative finance, can get this to pencil out. That's a highly risky proposition, and the risk, as you all know, is borne by taxpayers. Then finally, there's some real risks in building bridges. Bridges are not easy things to build, particularly in a river like the Columbia River that is a, you know, sort of the choke point for migrating endangered salmon. And there are real concerns about uh, doing water work in the water uh, at various times when the salmon are migrating. Uh, it's likely that the environmental agencies will require a, what's called an in-water work window that's four or five or six months long. That is, they're only working the period where the salmon wouldn't be affected. And if you do that, that raises the risk that the project will be delayed, take longer, and be more expensive. In fact, some, some analysts have said that the bridge can't be constructed at all if they can only work in the river four months each year. So there are a whole range of risks here. I've outlined just a few of them. We have a much longer report that's available on the web um, that deals with the CRC financial analysis and spells out each of these. But what I would just conclude by saying is there are three things you should keep in mind about this, this bridge. The real price tag over 30 years, including the financing costs, including everything that we need to do to get the kind of results that they're promising, is really more like $10 billion than it is $3 or $4 billion. The forecasts that underpin the financing and as well as the justification for this project are simply outdated. They're based on the assumption that everybody will travel like you can pay a dollar or a dollar and a half a gallon for gasoline. And we know that's simply not true. And it's foolish to spend a lot of money building capacity for a world that we know we will no longer live in. And then finally, the way this project is structured is is very, very risky to the taxpayers of Oregon and Washington. And if we go ahead with it, it means that we will expose ourselves, expose ourselves as taxpayers, or expose our state treasuries to enormous amounts of risk that simply aren't justified for a project uh, that produces so little in the way of benefits. So I hope that's helpful to you as you think about the Columbia River crossing. Thanks.